is Anxiously with Amy and Lisa. Now here are your hosts, Amy and Lisa. Hi, I'm Lisa. And I'm Amy. And this is Anxiously, the podcast where we talk about all the things, big and small, that make us feel anxious. How are you doing today, Amy? I'm good. It's Mother's Day season. I'm excited because I think I'll be able to actually see my mom because my vaccination will kick in. So it will be a very exciting reunion. That's so nice. How about you? I know you saw your mom because you're ahead of me in vaccination. We saw them last weekend and it was so wonderful. It was really beyond words. It was great. That sounds so nice. How was it seeing your mom after all this time? It drove home how hard and sad the separation was. I never not seen my mom for that long a time, and she had been apart from the kids. And But we were talking, and I mentioned that we were thinking about going to Israel over the summer because we haven't seen Liel's parents in almost two years. And my mom got very anxious about the idea of us flying during the pandemic. And, you know, the kids aren't vaccinated, of course, and potentially exposing them. And she's really worried about it. And I understand, but it kind of made me think about this pattern that we get into where I always want her approval. I seek it. I hunger and long for it. And I've been that way my whole life. Like she's always been the one whose opinion I wanted first and and most. And I have to say, my mom is extraordinary. She's so kind and loving and affectionate. And she's never been the kind of person or parent who withholds approval or love or who's overly judgmental. But when I don't get that approval, I spiral. (laughs) Oh, I relate so strongly. Like I, like you, I'm very close to my mom and we talk a lot and same thing. I like want her approval and all things. The other night we were on the phone and I shared with her that I have been cooking more recently, which as longtime listeners of the podcast know is a triumph for me. So I shared this with my mom, wanting her pride and joy. And I told her that my husband and I were about to actually sit down to dinner to eat something that I had cooked. So I was very excited to share that with her. And her response was, you're eating so late? You know, it was like (laughs) nine o'clock or something. She's like, that's not healthy. You know, that's terrible. Like we went into this and that was her takeaway, not, you know, good for you for finally learning how to cook. (laughs) And so of course that was a gut punch. And, you know, I don't think she realized, like, I don't know if our moms and moms realize that their words hold so much power and that just the slightest disapproval will send me, as you said, into a spiral. And I realized that that happens a lot. She wants the best for me and she's worried. Yeah. My mom had a really difficult relationship with her own mother who was really unkind to my mom. So I think my mother is very intentionally loving and kind, but she has a lot of anxiety. (laughs) It's where I got it from. (laughs) And I think it drives both of us and a lot of our interactions with each other and, and with the world and life. And I know she just wants the best. And so the anxiety is like real. You know, I was such a good kid growing up. I never 
never did anything. I always wanted to please, and I'm still the kind of person who just wants to please other people, but I really want to please my parents. And my one rebellion was becoming an English major in college. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> How is that a rebellion? There was no obvious route to a well-paying study job. There was so much anxiety when I announced that I was going to be an English major that I started to doubt myself. But at the same time, I knew they were just being anxious. And and so then there's this tension of like, do I get really anxious too? Right. Or do I say to myself, okay, no, you're an adult and this is not like a completely off the wall decision. I don't know. There's always this tug of war where I'm like, do I spiral too because I'm not getting the approval that I want? Or do I just man up and <laughs> woman up? <laughs> this perfectly describes so much of what I go through. It's funny that you're talking about being an English major because I was an English major as well. My mom really encouraged that. My mom is very bookish and I think I get that from her. And that's actually one of the ways in which we bond a lot is through our love of literature and books and movies. And it's funny, like when my mom and I fall into a rhythm of talking about the books that we love, or art or film, that's when I feel like we kind of hit this really lovely equilibrium where it's not about her approval or disapproval or judgment. It's just like we're relating like two people and it's and we have these common interests. That is so wonderful. And I kind of wish we had that rapport all the time, but it can't be that way because, you know, we're not friends. Like she's my mom and I'm her daughter. And growing up, she was the ultimate authority figure. She was very warm and loving and affectionate. And in some ways that made it harder to want to rebel because she created this very safe, cozy environment on the one hand. But then there was this very kind of stern element of, you know, you must be a good student. You must succeed. You must follow these steps to a good life. And any deviation from that was met with judgment. You know, I do struggle with like being a woman in my 40s and still wanting and seeking her approval so much. And I know, does that like never go away? I feel like I suspect <laughs> it doesn't. Like I I feel like I've actually made some progress getting married was helpful for me and kind of feeling like, okay, I have my own little family unit now. Like, okay, I am a grown up. I don't need to, you know, ask my mom for her advice on every little thing. In fact, it's probably better not to. <laughs> I've made a little progress there. Being a mom yourself, do you feel like you see yourself repeating patterns from your own mom? Do you feel like you're trying to change <laughs> or correct things? I hope I can be as good a mom as my mom was. Like the one thing that I think I probably repeat that I wish I didn't, and I'm probably way worse than my mother was, is the anxiety about their health and well-being and my instinct to call the doctor for every little thing. I try to temper myself, but I definitely have that tendency towards hypochondria. What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> and it's so much worse with the kids. Well, it's interesting. My mom, this reminded me talking about like health stuff. She was always worried that I was overdoing it. I feel like this is such a mom term. Like if I was like <laughs> doing too much, if I was like running around, you know, seeing too many friends or like staying up too late, getting up too early. It was, Amy, you're overdoing it. And like, and therefore I would get sick. And so I feel like that lives in my head so much. It's like, am I overdoing it? Like, am I pushing myself <laughs> too much? And so that I could see myself if I am ever to be a mom worrying about my kids in that way. Like, oh God, they're overdoing it. I'm like, do you learn that in Jewish mom school? I don't know. <laughs> That's funny. 
Do you think the fact that your mom is an immigrant has any bearing on how she parented you? Oh my gosh, hugely. Like it was very much about assimilating. Yeah, I think that consumed a lot of my mom's focus in terms of what success looked like. American success, going to a good college, marrying well, you know, having financial stability. I mean, I think that's universal, but I think there's also something very particularly American about it. Yeah, my mom's mother was super consumed with being the perfect American and having, you know, the perfect house in the suburbs with her husband who had his perfect job and her girls who dressed perfectly and were perfect students. And I think in some ways my mom bought into that in terms of like, you have to go to a good college, you have to be able to have a good living. But she was very aware of how for her own mother, my grandmother, it was really about outward appearances. And and I think my mom rebelled against that and really bristled at it. And so I never felt like I had to get good grades so she could brag to her friends. Whereas I think that was certainly the case for my grandmother. But my mom wanted me to get good grades so that I could excel and then move on to a good college and then have a stable career with a steady income and just like a secure safe life. So my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor, which I think had to have done a number on my mom. How could it not? Yeah, absolutely. Both her parents were survivors. So she grew up with that trauma, huge trauma, which I think led to a lot of anxiety on all sides. I was very close with my grandma too, my mom's mom, because she lived near us. And she Her concerns for me were very almost like elemental. It's like, are you eating enough? Are you healthy? Are you safe? I mean, it kind of makes sense. Like being a Holocaust survivor, those were her (laughs) priorities. Like it was less about status or success in the American sense for my grandma. I will say my grandma was, you know, from the generation. She was born in 1913. Like she I don't think she was super affectionate with my mom, like, which is interesting. And my mom, I think, chose to be very affectionate with her kid, like, as a reaction to that. It's interesting how there's, like, patterns and rebellions and it just goes on and on. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, moms and daughters and Jewish moms are a very fraught topic and a very interesting topic. And we actually have an amazing guest today to talk to us about all this stuff. Tova Feldshu is a four-time Tony and two-time Emmy-nominated actress known for her starring roles as Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir in Golda's Balcony, hypercritical mom Naomi in Rachel Bloom's Smash It Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and Deanna Monroe on AMC's The Walking Dead. Her new memoir is called Lilyville, Mother, Daughter, and Other Roles I've Played. And now, here's our talk with the incredible Tova Feldshu. We got Welcome, Tova Feldshu, to Anxiously. We're so happy to have you. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Thrilled to be here. I am such a major, major fan of all your work. So I am working hard to keep professional, but... uh... (laughs) You don't have to, Amy. I'm old enough. I'll take any approbation I can get. (laughs) Well, I have to say, I am reading Lilyville right now, and I love it so much. And as someone whose mom is named Lily and can be hypercritical, I relate to it deeply. So tell us about your relationship with your mom? Let me put it this way. They were here to preserve and protect us, and they did the best they could from the era from which they came. Let me tell you about Lilyville. My mother, Lily, was born on a dining room table in the Bronx in 1911. 
and she lived to a robust over 103 years young. And when I told her that I wanted to go to Juilliard and be an actress, she said, you're not going to a trade school. (laughs) Why don't you just go into the kitchen, get my challah knife, stick it in my heart and twist it. An actress. When I took her to see me in Pippin, where I had the privilege of stopping the show every night because the brilliant Diane Paulus put me on a trapeze singing upside down a hit tune and while doing a full out aerial act. So I was singing, oh, it's time to start living, time to think a little of this world we're given, time to take time because spring will turn to fall in just no time at all, while I was swinging upside down, hanging from my knees, doing flips, going backwards and forwards. And if you put an old bird hanging upside down on a trapeze singing a hit tune, you're going to stop the show. And I did that day, thank God. And I went to my mommy and I said, mommy, 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 like a two-year-old grasping for mother's milk, how did I do? And she said that you should still have to earn a living like this and on a trapeze (laughs) yet. When I took her to see Ms. Goldemayer, And that became the longest running one woman play in the history of Broadway in 100 years of Broadway. And I said, Mom, how'd I do? And she said, look, I rate your parts by how you look. Dolly Levi was a 10, Golda Meir, zero. Welcome to (laughs) Lilyville, where my mother Lily reigns supreme. And though all my parts have happened on Broadway and off Broadway and in concert halls and in television and film, they all took place under the dome of Lilyville for better or for exasperation. So the question here, Amy, is how does a Jewish mother who believes you can't have it all get along with a Jewish daughter who lives as if you can? And the answer is they don't. They don't get along. My mother was 40 (laughs) years older than I. We didn't have a generation gap. We had a generation chasm. And bridging that chasm took over six decades to accomplish. But my mother lived so long that we had time to accomplish it. So Lilyville has a very very happy ending. And I recommend it for any child of a parent with whom they don't feel intimate. There is always a road in. There's always a path in. And you must not only find it, but dedicate yourself to it. As my mother would say, happiness is a choice. And when I turned 40, my mother turned to me and said, Tova, how much longer are you going to blame me? And I said, not another minute. And I wrote the manuscript I handed it in. I had an editor saying, brilliant, brilliant. She got the manuscript and she said, this is not a book. I said, what? This is not a book. This is a bunch of pearls on a coffee table, not strung together. And I redid the entire manuscript as the pandemic broke out. I got uh, COVID from March 9th to 19th of last year. And by the 20th, yeah, yeah. You don't want to get that disease. I wasn't hospitalized, but you really. So those of you who are not vaccinated, get vaccinated. I rewrote the entire manuscript. And thanks to the graces of my very, very close friend and colleague, Jeff Harner, he said an incredibly simple, insightful, remarkable sentence to me. He said, Tova, what do you know best? I said, I guess I know the theater best because that's where I was trained. And he said, why don't you write this as a theater piece? And the world burst open. And I rewrote the manuscript as a theater piece. Instead of chapters, you get scenes. I write it in three acts with two intermissions. You can go pee and poop and eat your popcorn in between, do whatever you want. Instead of having a forward, I have an overture. Instead of having an afterward, I have exit music. Instead of having acknowledgments, I throw a cast party where I celebrate the people, all the people who helped me bring together the facts and the fantasies uh, the ups and the downs of Lilyville. And I, I hope I hit the river of universal experience. That's my hope. I figure we're all children. 
We all have parents. So this book is to tell you, you can do it. If I can do it, you can solve it. I welcome you into the theater of my memories. I wanted to stop the conveyor belt on Lilyville, not by writing a celebrity autobiography, but rather by seeing my life through my mother's eyes and my mother's life through mine. And in doing so, we cover 110 years of American women's history and Jewish women's history from 1911 and a dining room table to 2021, having the pleasure and privilege of being with you this morning. You describe in the book how throughout your childhood and a good chunk of your adult life, you felt like your mother just withheld her approval. How did that shape you as a person? It totally shaped me. You only have one mother. There's no understudy for a mother, which is a line I gave Lily, but in fact, it was I who created that line originally because one of my beloved children didn't learn to read and I didn't pick it up because I was so busy starring in Lend Me a Tenor. I didn't pick it up, but my older sister-in-law, Joan Firth, is a reading therapist and she caught it. And when I found that out, that was the end of my unlimited Broadway runs for 13 years till that child was on his way to Harvard and then on to Oxford, and then back to Harvard. So the kid was wow. brilliant. The kid wow. was brilliant, and like any Jewish mother, let's blame the school. The school decided, <laughs> collegiate decided that year to teach the whole reading program and not teach phonics. It was a great idea. 20 out of 40 boys in the first grade didn't learn to read. Back to mommy. There were different ways to love people. My father was a litigator. I was extremely attached to him for a very good reason. He had unconditional, expressive, verbal love. My mother showed her love through mitzvahs, through deeds, but she didn't speak. She didn't say, I love you. That's the bottom line. She never said, I love you. It's just unimaginable to me for a mother not to express verbally at least those three words. So when I was at Sarah Lawrence, I was 18 years old, and I said, Mommy, do you love me? And she said, love you? Who takes you in the Chrysler to your singing lessons and your dancing lessons and and to Hebrew school and takes you to Saks Fifth Avenue for clothing. We only go to Alexander's for undergarments. Who who bakes your nut cake? Who makes sure you have the silver dollar pancakes? Who who helped you uh, get your driver's license? What do you mean, do I love you? She still didn't say it. So we were like ships in the night. I really needed some verbal approbation. I didn't get the nourishment I needed from my mother. So as a young kid, my first companion, besides my dad, but, you know, my dad also, quote, belonged to my mother and my brother. I had to share my dad, was the mirror. A very appropriate view of myself as a two- or three-year-old in Scarsdale in my long mirror in my custom-made room. I lived in Quaker Ridge. I had a Quaker bedroom with the Quakers and red, white, and blue. Everybody was saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. The Rosenbergs were getting fried. My father was very upset about that. But America was in a great upsurge of patriotism and pride because we had been instrumental in saving the world from fascism. In all events, I would look at the mirror and I would say, are you real? Do you really exist? And when I said that to my managers, they got very sad. I said, I didn't really say it with a sense of embodying the sadness of those words. I just wanted to know if the mirror was I and I was the mirror. And then I started to talk to the mirror and make up monologues with the mirror and put babushkas on my head or borrow my mother's hats and I would tour my show to the bathroom where I had privacy, shut the door, climb on the stool. I was little. I was petite. I still am petite. And, you know, stretch to see myself in the mirror, continue my show. And then finally I got the courage to tour my show to the living room and do it for my two fans, my mother and my father. And my father would, oh, was, oh Terry Sue, oh, my God. And my mother would sit there with her arms folded in front of her. And she'd go, very nice, you know, very nice. 
So it was, it was tough. So I created a whole universe of companionship. And then eventually going into the theater, you could create, not only create stories, but you'd be part of a story where you'd know the beginning, the middle, and the end. Well, if you know the beginning and the middle, you know where you're going to get hurt. Anyway, my mother didn't give me what I needed. She didn't give me what I needed. So I created my own community and it started with plays. And when I asked to go to Juilliard and she said, you're not going to a trade school. I ended up at Sarah Lawrence because she didn't want me to go to Vassar. And I was desperate to go to Vassar. I would have been with Merrill and would have been very interesting. So Sarah Lawrence was not the perfect fit for me in my mind at all. They were lonely years, but I learned to learn for learning's sake. As my mother said, when she gave an inch, she said, who's going to teach acting up at Poughkeepsie? Now, what the real reason she didn't want me to go to Vassar was the Taconic Parkway. The Taconic Parkway in the 70s was the highest mortality rate in the state of New York. Didn't have its proper stanchions in the middle and the whole thing. So she said, if you go to Sarah Lawrence, you're near New York. So maybe one of those studios will take you and maybe the college will give you credit. And darn it, if I wasn't accepted by Uta Hagen, she taught me how to teach children because she never found fault. She just redirected. So when I coached soccer to the five to 10 year old girls in New York City and they would go, coach, coach, I made a goal. I made a goal. I made it with my elbow. I made it with my elbow. I said, that's really interesting. Why don't we, wait a minute, why don't we try it with our feet? She taught me that technique. Then maybe I began to apply that to Lily after she said when I was 40, when are you ever going to stop blaming me? So you're known for playing these iconic Jewish mothers and crazy ex-girlfriend, of course, kissing Jessica Stein, one of my favorites. Do you channel Lily for any of those roles? I want to channel Lily for a TV series called Lilyville, and I'd like to play Lily, and I'd like to play Tova. But if I have to choose, I'm taking Lily because she has the most punchlines. As the mother of a son and a daughter, do you find there's a difference in the relationship? Like mothers and daughters, you know, always have this fraught bond. Do you find that with your son too, or is it just different? It's different. I mean, I think the Bible is right. I think a a son cleaves into his wife. Brandon was my firstborn. He was my life changer. And I tell my children I love them because they breathe. I make it very clear. They have my unconditional love. Our son shares great intimacy with my beloved husband, Andrew Harris Levy. They love Manchester United. They go to England to see the games pre-pandemic. And my son is wonderfully different than I am, but very dutiful. He calls me every day with the baby. He wants to be with me. We give each other a tenor because it was during Lend Me a Tenor that my bubbla, my Brandon, was not taught properly to read, but then he mastered it. We give each other a tenor, which I take off my glasses, And we look at each other in the eyes for 10 seconds silently without moving. And we communicate with our eyes. So that child, like my daughter, he really moves me. He loves me to bits. Do we have the same conversations? Well, we have very different bodies. So we don't have the same conversations. And sometimes I have to take not a sledgehammer, but a very blunt ice pick to try to open (laughs) him up and get him to talk to me about his deepest feelings. He is like Andy. He copes beautifully, you know, with life. He has a lot of rectitude and a lot of stability. I love him dearly. Also, I go on adventure travel trips. Before the children were married, I took Brandon on a lot of adventure travel trips. We went to track gorillas in Rwanda. We climbed Mount Kilimanjaro together, and we climbed the ice glaciers in Iceland. 
So we've had some fantastic experiences where he can relate to me. We're both athletes. So we bonded that way. You know, they say intimacy with the men is my husband, Andy, and my son, Brandon, watching Man U on the television. It's a triangle. Whereas women are face to face. Women within five seconds, they're talking to you about their menstrual cycles. I mean, people, you know, people you just meet. It's a different bonding, but I love them both. And they say happiness is not getting what you want. It's wanting what you get. And uh, I'm very grateful for Brandon. He lives in Manhattan. He's moving with his wife and child even closer to us on the Upper West Side. And he calls me every night, seven o'clock. That phone rings and he's on FaceTime with Sydney May giving her her bottle and we talk about the day. But yes, are the relationships different? Yes. Would I say I'm more cellularly intimate because Amanda and I are women who had life come through our bodies and our mothers? This was the rapprochement with Lily. The first thing that happened that where Lily gave me some approval was when I married Andrew Harris Levy, a Harvard lawyer, and my father was a Harvard lawyer. She said, oh, my God, thank God, Tove will be protected. And on the day I was getting married, I already won five awards from being in Yentl. It was my first marquee. And my mother said, you can do anything you want now, Tova. And I'm figuring, she's saying, go to Hollywood, do movies, do television. You can do anything you want. You're marrying a Harvard lawyer. And that's how she judged my worth and success in this universe. And then when I gave birth, the minute you give birth, unless you're insane, you realize how good your mother is. The fact that my mother was always there and she was always in her shirtwaist and her pearls and her matching shoes and her hair coiffed. I mean, she didn't go to bed with her makeup on like Mrs. Maisel and then take it off when her husband's asleep. But she was always beautiful. And if you notice, I'm here in a flowered shirt because I'm about to play Ruth Westheimer. And she's an optimist and in very, very nice salmon colored pants. And my nails are done. I dressed. I don't show up for you in a robe with my hair messed up. And that's a Lilyism that you, you come with respect to other people. So what advice would you give to adult children who maybe have fraught relationships with their parents in terms of giving each other the space to grow or get close again? And the first thing is read Lilyville. But the second thing is you need to be the solution finder. You need to parent your parent. You need to take a breath and think enough of yourself to parent your parent and to figure out what they need so that you can have them relax enough to love you. I stumbled on it. Andrew Levy was number one, that's Brandon being born, and then Amanda being born, and we lived in California, we moved back home. That was a big one. And then realizing, particularly after my father's death, but realizing by the time I was in my 40s that life isn't forever. My father would die when I was 47. And I said at his funeral, it's okay that you died, Daddy. It's not okay that I have to spend the rest of my life without you. And that was true. And then my mother would live for 18 plus years after that. And I never took a second of it for granted. And I said, at least live up to your standards. So when I would say goodbye to my mother, I swear to God, for over 18 years, I would say what I needed to say in case she disappeared, in case she left her body that day. I would say, I'm the luckiest daughter in the world. I have the most wonderful mother in the world. I love you with all my heart. I love you unconditionally. Thank you for being my mother. And on the day she started dying, April the 19th, 2006, and she would live. She became a medical experiment. She lived over 2014. I said to her, I'm the luckiest daughter in the world. She was getting into the car. 
having trouble breathing. My luckiest daughter in the world, she'd say, I know, and I'm the best mother in the world, and you love me unconditionally. Can we please shut the door of the car? I've got to get home. i got to prepare for a party tomorrow. So that, that was my mother. It was a privilege to be with you. And when this pandemic ends, go look for me on the stages of America, in your television, and on film. I will be there. I love you unconditionally. I love you because you breathe. That was such a fun conversation. She is such a force. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I was starstruck. I am such a fan. And she was exactly as amazing as I imagined she'd be. Yeah. I want to listen to her more. I guess I'll go read her book some more. (laughs) She was so much fun. And she made me think about how much I love my mom and how grateful I am that she's my mom. Yeah, I liked how she said that she always told her mom what she meant to her. Like, that's really meaningful. And I feel like I should do that more. And then that like she and her mom had bumpy parts in their relationships, but were ultimately able to get to a better place was really good to hear because I think on balance, I have a good relationship with my mom. But like any relationship, there's bumps. Yeah, it does feel very fraught, though, when it's your mother, who is kind of the first and biggest relationship in your life that, yeah, you want everything to be perfect in a way, but it's okay to have the conflict occasionally. I think that's a really insightful, wise realization. Even if there are bumps, it's still rich and meaningful relationship no matter what. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) See, I'm doubting myself. I'm like, what would my mom say? What should we do this week? To feel more relaxed? Yeah. Well, I think we should call our moms, right? <laughs> I think you're right. We should celebrate them. <laughs> exactly. Go to yeah. the source. I now want to call my mom and just touch base with her and let her know how grateful I am that she is around and was always around, like Tova was saying. So, yes, we are lucky in that way. Very lucky. Well, I'm so glad you get it. (laughs) So grateful you get it, too. And we hope all of you listening get it as well. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Anxiously is brought to you by Tablet Studios. Our producers are Josh Cross. Sarah Fredman Ader and Robert Scaramuccia. Our music is by the best band in the world, Low Cut Connie. Please rate and review us on iTunes so more people can find us. It really helps. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at anxiouslypod. And if you have feedback or questions about the show, email us at anxiously at tabletmag.com. For more information about the show, head to tabletmag.com slash anxiously and check out all of Tablet's podcasts at tabletmag.com slash podcasts. See you later.